What I'm actually going to talk about today is probably the least liked or least popular subject in all of the world, much less all of Christianity. I'm actually talking about hell, what the Bible teaches about hell, what the truth of it is. Uh, I've prayed a lot over this one. I've actually been putting it off for probably four weeks because I didn't want to. I didn't want to deal with it. I mean, I I have studied the truth of it for myself, but I didn't want to stand up here and talk about it with you guys because it is well. It's 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 unspeakably important, but it's unimaginably um, terrible. Um, and when you do study on it and read on it and, and meditate on it and pray about it and, and ask God questions yourself um, and then you begin to you know really try and absorb the truth of it think about the future of the lost it, it it's nearly depressing uh, it's very very heavy but why is it important it's what's at stake and I expect that it's going to be a very somber and serious and quiet sermon not my favorite kind of sermon, but it's um, that's what I'm talking to you about. What's at stake? Um, it's a mistake to think that we want to be Christian because our friends are Christian, or most of the people we know, and that's how we were raised, you know. But you can be something else if you want to be. You know, maybe you can walk a while with Christ and maybe you hit 18 years old or something and think you can, you can live out in the world and perhaps practice other faiths or something. Maybe you don't understand. I, I, I think for my own children's sake, I need to teach on this. But what's at stake, in a sense, is the foundational reason why God sent His Son to die for us. It's not just sin. What's at stake is not just a, a life of poor decisions. In other words, if you don't actually come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, what's at stake is torment for eternity. And there's some popular views out there. They're not popular. They're actually minor views, but I want to deal with them. And I want to show that from the Scripture that what's at stake is an eternity of pain to which you deserve. So this is not just a decision of, yeah, you know, so maybe I made some bad decisions and I had a, I had a bad life, but I, when I die, it's over anyway, you know, I can't, it, it's all, it all ends. That's not the truth. When you die, it's just the beginning. Death is actually the beginning. It's the beginning of what your real life will be. I've always said this, this stage of life that we're in right now, if, if anything was, was the real life, it's the future life. It's the eternal life. And everybody will exist forever. That may be strange to you. The question is merely where. But the fact that you will be somewhere is... There's no, there's no doubt. There's no debate. Whether or not you believe what I say here today, this is why I've prayed so much over this. Because if it's true, and I know that it is, I believe that it is, and I think that y'all believe that it is. But if it is, when I preach a sermon like this, 
when you walk out of that door today, you can't unhear it. And so you're forever accountable in a sense. Because now you know. It's kind of like, if my son does something that I don't want him to do, but I never told him, can't really punish him for it until I at least tell him. And then he does it again. Well, today I'm telling you. I'm going to tell you. And so if you're old enough to understand when you walk out of here today, when judgment day comes, if you don't actually get your life right by first putting your faith in Christ and second, obeying His commands, if you don't actually get your life right, you may come before the judgment of God one day. Well, you will come before the judgment of God. And it may very well be that God brings to your memory, well, hey, don't you remember that day that the preacher stood up there and told you what would happen if you lived this way? Don't you remember that? And the person would have to say, yeah, I remember. Well, did you not believe it? Because it came out of my word. It's my word. No, I didn't believe it. Well, that's why you're going to hell. Because you don't put your faith in God. Because you don't believe in God. And so it's a very, very, very serious and somber thing. And we're going to look at two two different things. It's, it, we're looking at sin and we're also going to look at hell. But that's what I want you to keep in mind. And fathers, mothers, keep that in mind. What's at stake, my friends, is not just the choice to believe or not to believe. What's at stake is an eternal life in heaven or an eternity in hell. That's what's at stake. And so and when, the reason I say keep this in mind, parents, the Bible does teach that a strong hand of discipline will save a soul from hell, will save a child from hell. And it's, it's one thing to fear, or not fear necessarily, but to avoid having this big debate and argument with your children and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so, so you just kind of, you just have to take this philosophy of I live and let live, they're going to do what they're going to do, but we can't do that. If you really love your child, and it, this is not just about the children, I want the children to pay close attention, but if you love your child, you can't do that. You can't do it. Because what's at stake is not just that they're going to have 10 years of a bad life or something. What's at stake is that you could lose them to hell forever. Because once they go, there's no coming back. The Bible teaches between heaven and hell, there's a great gulf fixed. In other words, permanent so that they which would come from hell to heaven cannot. There is no escaping it. And so that is what's at stake when we're teaching our children about faith. Let's not think that our faith in Christ and the reason that we are obedient to Christ and all of that is so that we get material blessing. If God blesses us in a material way, great. But that's not why. Let's read some verses. Chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, we'll start with verse 8, for sake of time. The Word of God says, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, and what that means is cause you to sin, 
Think of the thief. He can't steal unless he has hands to steal. Or as the Bible says, there are several things that the Lord hates. Hands that shed innocent blood. Feet that are quick to mischief. So I just want you to understand. If your hand or your foot helps you, we could say, in sin, cut them off. And cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, we could say heaven, halt or maimed, which means handicapped, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, in other words, if your eyes are your agent for sin, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Turn over to Matthew 25. We're just going to look at one verse and then we're going to go on to Mark. In Matthew 25, we're going to look at the last verse, which is verse 46. And Jesus had just instructed them on how he's going to separate the believers from the unbelievers in the future judgment. And he talks to them about how they ought to live and how they ought to love one another and how they ought to care for one another and how that when they're doing that, they're doing it for his sake and for his glory. But when they don't, the ones that do not, it says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous to life eternal you know the word the word everlasting we're just getting started still but the word everlasting means never ending right that's that's very simple never ending so we could just say that these these that don't actually put this is a faith and practice passage it's not just a faith it's a practice also in other words it's putting your faith into action it's actually living according to what you believe. These that don't do that go away into never-ending punishment. That's my point. Everlasting means never-ending. Never-ending punishment. It's a punishment that never ends. It doesn't get more serious. Turn to Mark 9. In Matthew, we saw that it was everlasting fire which means a never-ending fire. Then we saw that it was never-ending punishment. Now in Mark 9, we're going to read what the parallel is for Matthew, but I'm doing it for a reason because there are things that I want to point out. And if you're in Mark, start at verse, Mark 9, start at verse 42. The Word of God says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone had been hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. In Matthew it says that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. It would have been better. The point is that if, if, if you are actually the cause of someone else's sin, or if you're actually the cause of someone else coming up short of heaven, so to speak, if you're the cause of someone's unbelief, if you're their justified reason to deny Christ, or if you're their justified reason to live, 
the way that they are. It's saying it would have been better for you if before you had ever done that, you would have just died. You would have been better off just dying rather than causing people to live in sin. Verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cause thee to sin, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. Listen. Into the fire that never shall be quenched. That means the fire will never be put out. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt. Like I said, that's, you know, handicap. It's, well, you, you can see what it means just by if you cut your foot off, how would you walk then? It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. I want to stop there for just a minute and let's unpack some of this. Because this is these passages that we read, I read a parallel, but the reason I wanted to read it is because Mark really seems to bring out the full emphasis of what the weight of what Jesus is saying, the weight of what's at stake. Now, this applies to everyone. Of course, we could say ultimately to the unbeliever, but that, you know, Jesus never mentions it that way. It's to the obedient. Not to me, but to Christ. And what I, what I mean, it, he's simultaneously teaching two things. He's teaching, one, the weight of sin. The seriousness of sin. It's extremely serious. A lot of people preach this passage and they say, he don't mean this literally. He don't mean literally cut your hand off. And to that I agree. But he does mean it literally. The symbol of cutting the hand off is to cut the sin off that you're using your hand to do. To cut the sin off that you're using your feet to do. We could say to cut the sin off that you're using your tongue to do. If your sin is sins of the tongue, you'd be better off to cut your tongue out. And so in one sense, no children, don't go and cut your body parts off. But in another sense, it's very literal. He does mean it literally. That it is that serious that actually if that's what it took, then that would be better. Like if you literally could not stop yourself from telling lies, you couldn't stop it, then you, you would be better off to cut your tongue out. Which you can, you can stop. But he is showing us two things. One, the absolute seriousness of the measures that ought to be taken to avoid sin. It is extremely serious. And with parents, with your children, that's what I was saying earlier. You know, your kids grow up and they get to a certain age or college age or whatever, and you, you, you think that you just kind of have to let them do their own thing. But you, you actually can't do that. Better for your child to hate you for where you stand than to not stand. That is biblical. Biblical. 
they will end up appreciating where you stand. And when you two get together in heaven one day, they will thank you for every disciplinary measure you ever took to keep them out of that awful place. Because that's what's at stake. But along with this, the seriousness of sin and the measures that a man ought to take. And I, I want to just encourage the, the parents too. Forget the children. This is to us. Uh, if you're a man that has become comfortable with a certain amount of sin, uh, you need to be awakened. So along with this seriousness of sin, he's actually anchoring this to the reality of hell. And this, this, this teaching of hell, although very unpopular, it's unpopular for a reason. It's of extreme importance. In fact, the more and more and more I meditated on this and studied on this, the more and more and more I realized that the gospel itself is connected to the reality of a future punishment forever. And that if that's not true, then why would Christ have even died? In other words, if I could eventually have suffered enough to pay for my own sin, then why did he have, ever have to suffer for any of my sin? If a hundred years in hell would have been enough to purge me of my sins, then why would Christ have ever had to die at all? The fact that he had to die is because there is a great gulf fixed, and you, once you go there, you ain't ever coming out. And without Christ, you are going there. That's why. Because you'll never pay. And I'll get into that later. But you will never satisfy with God your sin debt outside of Christ. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. But he anchors all these passages that we've been reading. The actual anchor, what, what's, what's the foundation that this truth is being built on? The anchor is the truth of hell. One could say, well, hell is so severe because sin is so wicked. And I would agree, but that's not what he's emphasizing here. He's emphasizing here that hell is so terrible that it ought to scare you out of sin. I mean, that's his point. He's saying, look, it's better that you would lose a hand, a foot, and an eye and be virtually 50% handicapped, incapable, and live a life of discomfort and pain in this world because even that, as bad and terrible as it would be if we stop and think about it, I don't want to lose a hand, much less a hand and a foot and an eye and perhaps two eyes. Or a tongue. I don't, I mean, can you imagine how miserable the life is? You see this actually happen to people that come home from war. They're suicidal. They're so miserable. And he's saying, listen, as bad as that is, it doesn't even compare to the severity of hell. He's using this illustration of an unquenchable fire and an eternal punishment to literally put the fear of God in your heart to cause you to back away from sin. And as Paul words it, spiritually speaking, he says to mortify, that means kill, the deeds of the body. In other words, that's, what, that's, a, that's a, a spiritual way to explain what Christ is talking about. To put your sin away. Because hell is so bad. We could ask it that way when Jesus said, if your foot offended, cut it off. Well, Why? Oh, because hell is so bad. Hell is so bad. You, and, and it's interesting. Jesus is actually not only saying that in this life, 
how bad would it be to pluck your eye out or cut your hand out? He's actually saying, even if you had to go to heaven with one eye and one foot and one hand, and even if you had to live forever with one eye and one foot and one hand, that's still infinitely better than an eternity in hell. At the very least, we can say that he's making the point. A temporary pain is much better than an eternal pain. And that is the point that he's making. And there's no doubt about it. So let's ask the question. Because this is what so many people want to ask these days. Is it really eternal? And then they want to carry that to if it is eternal, how is God, how is that right? How is God just? So the question, is it really eternal? Honestly, if we take the text seriously, there's no way that you can take it but that it's eternal. The whole illustration that he's using where he said over and over where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. When a body dies, if you've lived on a farm, you know this. It begins to decay. And worms begin to consume the body. It stinks. It's hard to look at. It's disgusting. But eventually, it ends. The body is consumed, and the worms die off. And the whole point of him saying, their, it says their worm, not the worms, but their worm, the worm that is eating their flesh, doesn't die. Well, how does it not die? Because they're never consumed away. The fire never goes out. Well, how does it not go out? Because it has a continual fuel source. You know, if you burn fire, if you burn a tree or something, it only burns till the tree is gone. And then the fire is quenched because the fuel is out. There's nothing fueling that fire anymore. The whole point is the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. Imagine, imagine for a minute, and I'm not going to try and make it seem worse than it is. You can't make hell seem worse than it is. In fact, no matter how bad I try and make it seem to you, it's actually worse than that. But imagine being conscious. Imagine being aware. Imagine being alive and you're the body that is decaying and there are worms in you and they don't die. And you're in a fire that never goes out. But even this fire is not a typical fire like we burn around a campfire. This fire has no light in it, just the heat. Because you're in total darkness. Jesus actually taught and talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And that's the Jesus that we follow. That's the Jesus that we believe in. And the way he described hell is that he said there would be weeping and wailing and grinding of teeth. Just the pain. I mean, that, I've had terrible pain like that before, enough that I was clenching my teeth, and it's terrible. But I can't imagine the pain of fire. But you don't die. It's, just, it's terrifying if you take it seriously. And you're in total darkness. And the wailing is just, just crying out in pain. Honestly, hell is the worst. It's, it's, it's actually worse than the worst thing that you can possibly imagine. Question, though, is it eternal? Well, we already read it in Matthew. Everlasting, which means never-ending punishment. We read it in Mark. The fire that never goes out. The worm that dieth not. But in Revelation chapter 14, and y'all don't have to turn there. It might take you a minute to find it. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses. This is the judgment against those who actually follow after the Antichrist instead of following after the true Christ. 
It says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, receive, the mark of, in his, receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, that same man shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his wrath. And listen. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. When it says the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, it doesn't mean that it goes up, 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 up forever. No, it means that it ascends continually everlasting, that it never stops. And listen, I may be a little bit animated sometimes, and I may not be doing a good job to get the point across, but if anyone here is actually taken seriously in their heart what I'm saying right now, you would be terrified. If you actually believe the word of God, you would, you would be terrified. Even saved people should be terrified at the thought of hell. Not terrified that we're going, but terrified that for those that are. Terrified that there's a reality of a place that eventually ends in the lake of fire and people are burning and screaming forever. That is absolutely terrible. And that is what the Bible teaches. It ought to, it, there, ought, it, there should be no way that you can sit out here and listen to this kind of message and smile. No way. If you take it seriously at all. Revelation 20 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever. Now it's easy for the logic of humanity to say, Well, how's that possible? I mean, eventually you'd have to die. Well, first of all, my friends, you have to think about that when you do die, there's a change that happens. There's a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. There's a resurrection, as Jesus in his own words says, of the righteous and the damned. And we all know that the righteous get a new body. And that that body is immortal. That's what Paul says. This mortal body must put on an immortal body. But it seems to me that the dead that didn't believe in Christ, they also get an immortal body. It's not glorified perhaps disgusting they get one that won't die and even think about in revelation where the wrath of god is being poured out upon people who refuse to cease from sin and put their faith in christ it says this pain is so great it says and men seek death and death flees from them they desire to die but they can't with god it's completely possible but you just never die closing it down here is God unjust is this right because I'm telling you it's a terrible thing is it right does the punishment match the crime because that's how we think about things does the punishment match the crime well first of all as I was thinking on this I thought you know if I tell you beforehand what will happen to you if you do this and then you do it anyway then it actually doesn't matter how severe I told you the punishment was. I'm justified. In other words, if I tell my son, listen, 
If you go out there and get in the pool without me or mom knowing, I'm absolutely going to beat your tail. And then ground you for two weeks and take your keys away and your phone. And you don't get any snacks for a week. If I tell him that, though to the world that may seem extreme, that's harsh, that's, that's too much. I mean, he's just jumping in a pool of water. What's the problem? But if I tell him that this is what will happen if you jump in, and then he jumps in, am I unjust in doing that to him? No. Because he made the choice himself. He chose the punishment. And also, that brings me to the question of, we as parents understand this. Why is it that you put such severe threatenings of punishment on your children for the things that you are protecting them from? You, you intentionally, when you're talking to your child about how to behave, what to drink, what not to drink, how, you know, how to dress, how not to dress. When you're talking to your child about this stuff, for the most part, you put very severe punishments on the line. Why? For the exact reason to keep them from doing it. If you just said, listen, you can, you can, yeah, you, you can do that. Or you, I'm sorry, if you say, yeah, you can do that. But if you do, I'm taking your phone away for five minutes. It's like, okay, fine. That's basically a non-punishment. But when the risk is great, when there's a true danger in their future, if you love your child at all, you actually lay out the worst punishment that you think you can deal out yourself. And you make it so that in their minds, it's terrible. So that they have a fear that keeps them from doing the thing that you don't want them to do. And also, what is it that you're even, why are you even telling them not to do something at all? Because you're protecting them. In my mind, the more and more I thought about this, the more I come to this conclusion, if hell was less severe, I think God could then be accused. Well, you didn't make it bad enough, like, you know. Yeah, I ended up here, but it's because it really wasn't that bad. Eventually, I'll, I'll ride this storm out and I'll get out of here. Hell is literally the worst possible thing you can imagine for the exact reason to keep the hearers from going there. It should strike fear into you. And in that sense, hell is a grace. It's the grace of a parent that says, son, I'm going to whoop you like you ain't never been whipped before. If you go out there and take my truck and leave and I don't know about it. You're trying to protect him. It's a grace when you put the worst possible punishment out there. It's the grace of God. It's not that God is unjust. And then also we have to understand the wickedness of sin and the seriousness of sin. Sin to us is, is we simplify it and we, we, we justify it and we just make it seem so innocent. But it isn't. I mean, it's like a, a, a thief or a, a person in prison for murder or something, you know? He's like, well, look, there's eight billion people on earth. I only killed one. All sin is terrible. All sin. There are sins that's worse than others, I agree. But all sin is terrible. And then when you think about who you're sinning against, you know, if a little kid goes and steals a dollar from a gas station, they probably won't even press charges. 
But if he goes into Fort Knox and takes a dollar worth of gold, they'll bury the boy. Or if a kid walks on his neighbor's land and so he's technically trespassing, the neighbor's not going to press charges. But if the same kid steps one foot across the line at Area 52, they shoot him right where he stands because it's who he's sinning against. And when you're sinning against the holy God, I don't even think we understand the word holy rightly, just to be honest with you. It's the worst possible thing that you can do. It's the worst possible thing that you can do. And my last point, is God just or not? My children, if you end up in hell, it's because you chose it. So how could I look at God and say, why did you send my son there? When God would say, I didn't send him. He marched in of his own free will. In fact, I sent many messengers to try and stop him. I sent 66 books of the Bible, sermon after sermon, preachers, warnings. Even in his own heart, I convicted him. But he would not listen. God is not unjust in his sentencing of the punishment of hell. He's not unjust. So let me close with this. I know that this is heavy, my friends. We can't hold to one part of the Bible and not the other. It just don't work that way. I think every one of us should be way more serious about our own sin, about what we're putting in to our children, what we're allowing, what we're not allowing. I also think every one of us should feel a greater sense of urgency for our friends that are lost. I don't know exactly how literal to take this story that Jesus told. But I know that he's made certain points in there for a reason. And he tells the account of a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived his life how he wanted to. Lazarus lived his life for God. They both die. It says Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham. But the rich man died and then opened his eyes and he was in hell. And he cries out to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, send Lazarus that he might... This is how bad hell is, my friends. That he might dip his finger in some water and give me a drop to cool my tongue. He says, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham says, no man can come to you. Nobody can help you. And you can't come here. There's a great gulf fixed. You're, you're there and I can't even send Lazarus to you if I wanted to. And then he says, well then send Lazarus to my brothers. And warn them about this awful place. And Abraham's response is basically this. 
they've been warned. He says they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. Let them hear that. In other words, let them believe that. They've been warned. They've been warned. And then, they, and then the, the rich man in hell says, Oh no, but, I, but Father Abraham, if one came back from the dead and went to him, they would believe him. He says, if they don't believe this, they won't be persuaded even though one rise from the dead. And so when I say what I'm about to say right now, don't think at all it's because I'm saying it of me. I think you have every right and reason to not trust everything that I say. But the message that I preach to you today is not me. If you reject what I said today, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. I didn't add to or take away. This is not my teaching, it's His. I just told you what He said. 